0: not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they by special that fund their campaign. That's why you hear that same old they claim.
1: Welcome to the Project Censored Radio Show. I'm your host for this week, Eleanor Goldfield. Steven Donziger, the man caught in the crosshairs of one of the largest corporations in the world, Chevron, joins the show to discuss updates on his ongoing struggle to demand accountability for the people of the Amazon in Ecuador. And how we can and should use courts and litigation as a tactic, while also understanding that our courts and our judges exist to uphold the capitalist industrial economy. Donziger explains how extreme charges like terrorism, felony trespassing, and more are used to try and shut down our movements as they continue to grow. And that's why we need broad strategies, broad support, and the decolonization of our minds. Next up, oh, the land of the free press? Not really. Or not unless you're quote-unquote real press. What's that, you ask? Well, not anything that demands police accountability or covers the continued violent gentrification and forced removal of unhoused folks. At least that's the case, quite literally, for two journalists from the Asheville Blade in Asheville, North Carolina, who are the first journalists to be found guilty for the heinous crime of gathering and reporting the news. Matilda Bliss and Veronica Coit join the show to discuss their case and the ongoing struggle facing Frontline and community journalists who dare to tell the truth and go against the establishment. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored. Thanks, everyone, so much for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Stephen Donziger, who is an advocate, writer and public speaker on human rights and corporate accountability. He has worked closely with indigenous and farmer communities in Ecuador's Amazon rainforest that in 2011, won a historic environmental judgment against Chevron based on the company's deliberate dumping of more than 16 billion gallons of toxic waste into the delicate ecosystem. Donziger also has a long history of working on behalf of marginalized communities that have been harmed by entrenched corporate and governmental interests. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. So, uh, so basically, this this is airing around the one year anniversary of the end of your house arrest, uh, and right now, as I understand it, you're in appeal regarding your license to practice law. What have you been occupying your time with, and where does that battle stand as of right now?
2: Well, I'm occupying my time pretty much the same way I did while I was detained, which is trying to fight for the rights of myself, my family, and my clients down in Ecuador, and just really to stand for the broader principle that lawyers and advocates should not be locked up in a rule of law country, certainly not in the United States of America. So, you know, while my personal situation is challenging, we've gotten through the worst of it. And I feel really strong and optimistic about the future. This goes way, way beyond me. I mean, what happened to me? I believe is illegal and really an abomination on a lot of levels. And I think people need to be aware of what happened to me and understand that what happened to me is much bigger than me because it's part of a playbook that I believe corporations are going to try to use going forward to silence you know, advocates and lawyers who are a little too successful, a little too effective in holding these companies accountable for their pollution or their malfeasance, which I believe is what happened to me.
1: And folks can check out. There was recently just an Esquire uh, article written about your case specifically, and folks have have covered also what happened to you in the past. People like Lee Camp and such. But as you also pointed out on your Twitter feed, the New York Times and you know the Washington Post and like these corporate media has been very silent. And of course, there's a reason. It's the corporate media. You don't want to bite the hand that feeds there. And I want to I want to kind of switch to talk more about. These legal battles that you have advocated for. And one thing that that you heard more about a few years ago, maybe 10 or so years ago, was the necessity defense. The idea that we have to break the law because there are no legal alternatives to mitigating the serious harm already caused by climate change. And as far as I'm aware, it only worked once in the UK in 2008. Back in 2014, activists tried to use it here in the United States after blocking a train carrying crude oil but the judge in that case ruled that, quote, defendants had failed to show that there was no reasonable legal alternative to their actions, end quote. So my question to you, as someone who is well acquainted with the law, how do you feel that judge's argument holds up?
2: So as regards the necessity defense, there's hardly any judges in the world, at least in the you know northern industrialized world, who would have let a defendant use the necessity defense in court. You know, you can file motions through the necessity defense explaining why it should be used. And that really is a mechanism to put lots of great information before the judge. But there's hardly a judge in the world who will let that get to a jury. You know, when you say it's only worked once, I mean, the reason it's only worked once is because courts won't let people use it. You know, if (laughs) if if it was allowed to be used, it would work effectively in dozens and dozens, hundreds of cases, which is why they don't let it happen. You know, people need to remember our judiciary is structured a certain way. It's not really fair, okay? Judges are fair within a corporate framework. And most judges come out of corporate defense law firms. They're very establishment, and their job is to protect the rule of law defined by whatever society, you know, a country might be. In our case, we have an advanced industrialist society, a capitalist economy, and those with money, you know, have the power. So, you know, they're not going to let people bring this defense, but you can still file it as a pretrial motion and really make a lot of, you know, make really gain a lot of ground in terms of optics, in terms of getting information and in, in terms of a press strategy, for example, that can really advance the interest of of one's client. So I consider the necessity defense very alive and very viable, and I think it's an outrage, frankly, that courts won't let it be used before juries for the most part. But it doesn't mean it's dead. I mean, it can definitely be used and it needs to be pushed when appropriate, in my opinion.
1: But just don't expect it to save the day.
2: Well, you know, I think there's other ways to win cases without using it, obviously. And, and, you know, but I'm, I'm a firm believer when the system is trying to crush, say, an environmental activist when the system is charging someone with, you know, domestic terrorism for protests, which is starting to happen now in this country, you have to use every tool at your disposal to fight back, including, you know, both in court and out of court, legal strategies and, you know, political strategies, because frankly, this is all political on the other side. I mean, you know, I, I, as a, you know, human rights lawyer, like, I, I would love to just litigate the law. The law is Always on the side of human rights on paper. You know, it's the politics of courts and what's happening outside the law that really interferes, I think, with the fair application of the law as regards oppressed classes of people in our society, including those fighting for marginalized communities and fighting to save the planet and fighting for police reform and fighting for racial justice. You know, so. The the system is stacked against people who are part of these movements. So you have to be really smart and creative to even get a fair trial, by the way. I mean, the, the system is structured not to give people who do this work fair trials, you know, when they get charged. And it happens at every level, the way the police treat people, the way prosecutors charge crimes, they jack up the charges to try to intimidate people. You know, people, for example, in in line three protests in Minnesota are being charged with felony trespass. I mean, trespass is not a felony anywhere until suddenly the fossil fuel industry convinced police and prosecutors to start charging it as a felony, which essentially means people are facing long jail terms for engaging in peaceful protests and civil disobedience. You know, so there are all these kind of things going on that make fighting these cases more difficult. But it's only, frankly, happening because our movement is becoming stronger I mean, this wouldn't be happening if the industry didn't feel threatened, you know, by what's happening, for example, with the climate movement, the environmental justice movement. You know, our work in Ecuador on behalf of indigenous peoples against Chevron, perfect example, total, incredible overreaction designed to destroy our case and to destroy me personally. You know, So these things are starting to happen in ways that I hadn't seen earlier in my career. And it's it's because of structural changes and political changes that are happening outside of court to control what happens inside of court. And people need to be aware of these dynamics and how they go down. And before I sort of end my, my very long answer to your excellent question, I just want to say there's an excellent book that I recommend people read written by, of all people, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island. It's called The Scheme, and it came out a few months ago, and it documents in horrifying detail a multi-decade plan by the Koch brothers and the Federalist Society and the fossil fuel industry, among others, to control our federal judiciary. And it has culminated in success. And if you look at our current Supreme Court, and also not just our Supreme Court, appeals courts, trial courts, They are largely controlled, at least most of them, certainly the Supreme Court, by what I would call extremist elements of the far political right, you know, in our country. So we we, we need to be aware of what's happening so we can counter it with the right strategies.
1: You mentioned the overreaction, which is, of course, a very personal overreaction in your case. But that also gets personal for these protesters who, for instance, there are 42 people who've been charged with domestic terrorism in Georgia for supporting the Stop Cop City movement. And, you know, you mentioned Line 3. And since Standing Rock in 2017, 19 states have passed harsh, quote unquote, critical infrastructure laws. That would basically lead to anything from, you know, extended prison time, like five years in prison for hindering critical infrastructure, like blocking a pipeline construction or something like that. And I'm curious how, you know, you were talking about how the the law is used against these folks, but how can you honestly go into court as a prosecutor and say that someone protecting a tree is a terrorist? How do you even start that argument? And how should people who are doing that protection, how should they prepare for these arguments?
2: So, okay, the the way, first of all, they can do whatever they want because they feel like they can never be held accountable. They being law enforcement, you know, and the powers that fund them. And we're seeing this in Atlanta and DeKalb County, Fulton County right now, where 42 people are charged with domestic terrorism for protesting the Cop City Police Training Complex. You know, the, the worst these people could possibly be charged with based on evidence is trespassing. There are those who committed acts of vandalism against construction equipment, so maybe there's a charge for that small subset of people related to property vandalism. But most people charged were just out in the forest protesting, and the police were angry, and they just arrested them willy-nilly. It was crazy. And then charged them with terrorism, which is, by the way, has a maximum penalty under the Georgia state law of 35 years in prison. And many were held in these horrid jails down there for you know weeks at a time, denied bail. And it was all just designed to intimidate people. And what I want to point out, first, all, I don't think these domestic terrorism charges against the people in Atlanta are going to hold up. What they're being used to do is to scare the heck out of people, to basically intimidate those who might think of joining the protesters in solidarity and growing the protest movement. They're trying to shut the movement down by locking a few people up and creating these bogus charges against them that make headlines because people hear terrorism and they immediately go to images of what happened, for example, on 9-11 in New York. You know, so there's nothing like that. There's, There's nothing that can even come close to justifying a terrorism charge or even any act of violence, you know, against these people. So I consider it a damn outrage. Now, what's happening? What they're really doing is using the procedure of the law to screw people without ever allowing it to be tested on the substance. I actually don't believe that statute is constitutional, the one being used in Georgia that, that allows them to charge domestic terrorism. It's vague. It could charge almost anything, you know, hugging a tree as terrorism. But it's never been tested in court because all these people arrested are still in an extremely early pretrial phase. In other words, the police are basically using the process to lock people up without trial, charge them with terrorism where the facts don't justify it. And it's a complete abuse of power. It's, in my opinion, illegal, unconstitutional, a violation of international law, but they're doing it anyway. And they're getting away with it because local judges who are clearly colluding with the police are letting them do it. and They're backing it up. You know, I believe ultimately all those cases will go away once they get into far enough along in the process to challenge the law but you know what's happening in the meantime is you have months and months and months of people locked up you know charged with these you know what look on the surface to be like heinous offenses that are really nothing and those watching it are nervous they get scared and they get intimidated so even if these cases get dismissed down the road the fact is the the cost the suffering being imposed on those charged right now is intense and it's designed to intimidate. I can relate because something similar happened to me when I was locked up, you know, in a, the nation's first private corporate prosecution. I was prosecuted by Chevron for contempt of court for challenging them over their pollution practices in the Amazon down in Ecuador. And I had to wait, you know, 2 years and 2 months for a trial. I was denied a jury in that 2 years and 2 months I was locked up in my home with an ankle bracelet, I could not leave my home, this home where I'm sitting right now, did not count toward the, my ultimate sentence of six months. So in other words, the max sentence in my case was six months was a misdemeanor. I, I had spent detained over four times the maximum sentence where I could even get a trial. They killed me with the process, you know, and I never got a jury. They killed me with the process. You know, I got disbarred as a lawyer without a hearing, killed me with the process. And what people need who sort of have to deal with this you need broad strategies that understand how it works that is, it is a process oriented attack. And you need broad coalitions of support in the public if they can get organized, not just in the local community, but nationally and internationally to point out that these are massive international human rights violations and the people. Carrying them out in case of Atlanta, you you know you can put names on these people. I mean, Sherry Boston is the DA who's charging these cases, DA of DeKalb County, you know, who who fashions herself as a progressive DA. Um, you know, these are people who, and the judges as well, they are ultimately, I think, going to be exposed to potential legal jeopardy as human rights violators. I promise you, if that had happened in Russia. The Magnitsky Act would apply and they would never be allowed to travel to the U.S. And if they had assets here, their their assets would be frozen. I mean, that could apply the Magnitsky Act just as appropriately to authorities in Georgia as it can to Putin and his authorities who are locking up Alexei Navalny, who's a person I greatly admire, a human rights activist in Russia. You know, but it's happening here in our media. We talk, I mean, you're, you know, you understand issues of censorship our media won't cover it right. I mean they barely mention it and when they mention it they act like it's just terrorism charges. You know it's like they don't even explain the context and how how baseless these charges are. So you know I would say step 1 is decolonize your mind and get information so you can understand what's really happening because if you're relying on the natural media ecosystem of the main newspapers, the main cable networks, you're not getting information that you need to understand how to deal with what they're throwing at us.
1: You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll now continue our conversation with Stephen Donziger. And of course, at Project Censor, we deal with media literacy. That's one of our main issues. And you had mentioned how corrupt appeals courts are as well. And I recently saw that uh, Caitlin Halligan, the private attorney who represented Chevron in its pursuit of racketeering charges against you, has just been nominated to the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state. And you mentioned other examples of how twisted and corrupt our judicial system is from the local level to the federal how much should we expect from the legal system i mean there are continuously fights happening we want an injunction against this company to stop drilling how much should we expect from a legal system that is that twisted and pedestals these horrifying people
2: well you know every legal system reflects the power structure of the country that it, it exists in right i mean the cuban legal system reflects a totally different set of priorities than the american legal system you know so You know, what makes a legal system fair, even in the context in which it exists, is that there's a a pretty even application of the law to everybody. And I think what we're seeing, and by the way, as as problematic as the US legal system has been historically, I mean, remember, we, we locked up people in concentration camps during World War II. Okay. Our legal system justified apartheid, you know, for our entire history until the 1960s. You know, by the way, we're one of three countries that practiced apartheid in our written laws in the history of the world. The others being South Africa and Germany during World War II, during Hitler. So all of this oppression and human rights violations has been always justified by our Supreme Court. Let's not act like our Supreme Court is some progressive force to move our society forward. Historically, in my opinion, it's been just the opposite even though on occasion it comes up with some good decisions, on occasion, okay? But we gotta understand how this operates to understand how to devise the strategies to deal with it. And you know, people need to get out of their head that like the United States is an exceptional country where the rule of law applies, we have a great judicial system, because the reality is we have a very problematic judicial system, by the way, in my opinion, just like every other judicial system in every other country. They're not designed to really be even and fair. They're designed to protect power in that place. Now, understanding that, there is still space in these systems, and certainly in ours here in the United States, to do good things through the law. You know, there's decent judges. There's laws, civil rights laws. You can actually sue the police, win cases, okay? You can sue Monsanto, which a friend of mine, Rick Friedman, just did in, in, in Seattle and won you know, huge judgments over PCBs and poisons that Monsanto was emitting into schools, causing brain damage to kids. I mean, there's things you can do to create some good out of our legal system. But overall, if you have a case that gets too far along and challenging the fundamental paradigm of the power structure, which is what I think we did you know, against Chevron, we basically challenged the idea an American oil company could just pollute in a relatively unregulated nation of the global south, we challenged that paradigm on behalf of people with no money and won. And they just went crazy and had to figure out a way to try to destroy that model, which you know we're still battling. you know. But we are very clear-eyed about what is happening. And I think that people need to come up with the appropriate strategies, again, in court and out of court, to create some energy, some force, some public scrutiny of some of the bad aspects of our system such that you can get a fair trial and hopefully achieve some level of justice. And, you know, even if you can't in court, you can't out of court. Just call it out and, you know, make sure the people doing it are known to the public. I mean, I do that on my Twitter feed and my Instagram feed a fair amount. I put pictures of people like Sherry Boston and DeKalb County prosecutor charging domestic terrorism. I put pictures of me people need to see who these people are because like they get away with it when they're underneath the radar when no one's watching so it's important we call out the actors who are carrying out these schemes to deny justice fundamental justice due process of law to those who challenge the power structure you know we need to understand how it works and then we need to devise the strategies and by the way you know as we organize politically as we try to get you know, the climate movement and other justice movements stronger, you know, hopefully our society will evolve, that is in the United States, to be a more fair society with a government that actually protects the public interest as opposed to just being an instrument of corporate power, which in my opinion is what it fundamentally is right now.
1: Wrapping up here, I'm curious, this kind of flows from the, the previous question as well. What you fought against was commonly known as Amazon Chernobyl. And again, folks can get into details that we don't have time to get into right here. But as noted in the intro, Texaco, then acquired by Chevron, dumped more than 16 billion gallons of toxic waste into the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador, wreaking the foreseeable havoc that is, of course, still felt today. And while that is remarkably horrific, it's not unique. I mean, you had recently shared that Canada is talking about dumping 1.4 trillion liters of tar sands tailings waste equivalent to 560,000 Olympic sized swimming pools into the Athabasca River. <laughs> I mean, like, where's the case against that? <laughs> the industrial catastrophes that keep happening like East Palestine or the recent fire at a plastic plant in, in Indiana, or like the entire industry down in Cancer Alley. I mean, why don't we see more cases being made against these horrific happenings?
2: I've seen in my career, and I've been doing the law thing for 30 years, okay? And what I've seen is a steady erosion of the ability to hold these bad actors accountable. I mean, let's just take the poison problem in Ohio from the train derailment as an example, okay? In that situation, in in a normal country, Okay, and there's a big industrial accident. The agency responsible for protecting the public interest would get in and and immediately deal with it and protect people, evacuate them, test for chemicals in a proper way, assess the danger without really worrying about what the rail company thought, without succumbing to industry pressure. And that just didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is because the agency and our government responsible for doing that, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA went in there and basically turned the keys of the assessment and the cleanup over to the polluter. That is, the the rail company is the entity responsible for cleaning up its own pollution caused by its own greed and corporate malfeasance, further caused by the fact that it never invested properly in braking equipment, which could have avoided this entire problem because it was so intent on paying... Obscenely high dividends to its investors, many of whom were the big Wall Street hedge funds like Blackstone. So there was a whole corporate corruption problem. The company, of course, wants to portray that as an accident. To me, it wasn't. It was a clearly foreseeable result of a crime, a corporate crime. But you know, the EPA went in there and and just didn't do its job and. The reason it didn't do its job is because industry has so degraded the ability of the EPA to do its job. I mean, during the Trump administration, the, you know, there were chemical industry lobbyists running the EPA, and their whole point was to undermine it. There's staffing shortages, there's morale problems, there's a lack of political will because they keep getting attacked. So by the time they show up, they're just so neutered that they don't even know how to think right. And you can look at the Indiana Plastics fire, even the abortion issue with the abortion pill. Okay, my private prosecution by Chevron. You know, man in Atlanta just died after he was literally eaten alive by bedbugs in a jail, in a filthy jail cell. Okay, how do we understand all this seeming crazy stuff? I mean, to me, it goes back to one origin story which is that our government at every level has been completely degraded and eroded by corporate power such that it cannot do its job of protecting the public. And that's the bottom line in each one of these things. I mean, the abortion thing, same thing. You know, I mean, you think they're talking, having a debate in Canada about whether you can get an abortion in Canada. It's not even a debate. Like, it's just what is So, you know, why are these issues being cranked up, these so-called culture wars? I mean, in my opinion, it's all part of a larger plan to keep people distracted from the key issues of the day. I don't mean to diminish the abortion issue. I mean, it is a huge issue, but that's why it distracts people, because it's like such an assault on freedom and on reproductive rights. That like, if you're being assaulted like that, that's all you're thinking about is how to protect yourself. You're not understanding or even have time to think about the framework of why all this is happening. You know, so I would say what we're seeing, if you go back to the early 70s to now, you know, from the time that Ralph Nader, by the way, one of the great historical figures in our country, helped create all these government agencies, Consumer Protection Bureau, the EPA, okay it's all was created and then it got little by little completely degraded by lobbyists and corporate power to the point where as i said earlier i mean these agencies in our government designed to protect us are actually instruments of the corporations that are attacking us and that's where we stand right now in the united states of america and we need to fix that as people and the way that's going to be fixed and the only way that can be fixed is through us that is grassroots movements power of numbers and making it happen, whether it's on the street, at the ballot box, in courts, court of public opinion, on the protest lines, whatever it is, there's gotta be all of that. And we gotta grow the movement. The basis, of course, are shows like yours, great show. This kind of thing, independent media, is the key to people understanding how to move, how to connect, and how to make stuff happen so we can fix these deep, deep problems.
1: The multitude of tactics We talk a lot about that in organizing circles. It's very important. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with Project Censored. Where can folks follow your work?
2: I'm on Twitter at S. Donziger, on Instagram at Stephen Donziger with a V-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. So please follow me there. You can also learn more about my particular detention and the attacks on the people of Ecuador from Chevron. We have a website called freedonziger.com. By the way, the reason I'm I'm not totally free, I don't have a passport. They have confiscated my passport, which means I can't do my human rights work fully. And they've also taken my law license away. So I'm engaged in these battles. I'm going to international courts. We need help. So on the website freedonziger.com, you can learn more. And you can also donate to our defense fund, which we use to do the Incredibly important work of continuing to hold Chevron accountable in this groundbreaking case that we won, and they're refusing to pay the damages.
1: You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our show after this brief musical break, so stay with us.
0: Because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
1: Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Veronica Coit and Matilda Bliss. Veronica is a passionate advocate for social justice, mental health, and animal welfare, who went to work with the Asheville Blade in the summer of 2020, devoted to bringing the real stories out to their community. In 2020, they also received the North Carolina Governor's Volunteerism Award. And Matilda Bliss is an Appalachia-born non-binary trans woman living in Asheville, North Carolina. She started writing for the Asheville Blade, a leftist media cooperative, in 2019 with a focus on local government and a range of social justice movements before, during, and after 2020. Matilda, Veronica, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: Project Censored works a lot with media literacy and press freedoms. And so when I saw y'all's story in my Twitter feed, I was like, well, that's both horrifying and not terribly surprising. So recently, a judge in North Carolina found Y'all, uh, two journalists with the Asheville Blade guilty of quote unquote trespassing in, on Christmas in uh, 2021 when you stayed in a public park to cover Asheville police officers evicting an unhoused encampment. This was the first guilty verdict in a trial of this kind and the fourth trial of its kind since 2018 against journalists for quote offenses allegedly committed while gathering and reporting news, end quote. This, according to the Freedom of the Press Foundation. So, I'd like to hear, in y'all's words, starting off with the events of that evening, if you could walk us briefly through what was happening there, why you were there, and what happened with regards to being arrested by police.
3: I showed up kind of late afternoon. There had been a lot of events that week already that we had also covered, and other media outlets had also covered concerning a community art build and also people creating a sanctuary camping site for unhoused folks. So kind of like dual purpose activism and mutual aid. There were a lot of signs there earlier in the week talking about gentrification and supporting unhoused people, like being able to like access shelter at night, you know, when it's like really cold, like code purple shelter when it's stuck really cold. So, you know, this is really interesting topic. There had been a lot of real strange misinformation about the actual Police Standard Operating Procedure concerning how they evict houses camps. So at that time, they had on books a seven-day notice policy where they would give folks notice, you know, start getting ready to move on and on the first day of that week, they had said, well, we're changing that policy so you have to you have to get out now basically telling people to operate on the basis of a policy they hadn't yet implemented fully and changed for themselves. So anyway, we're there covering this event. it's Christmas. there's people milling in it it grows, I'd say to maybe 30 or 40 people at max throughout the night. And it's like super low key. There's not much to report. It's just people hanging out and eating food and playing music. And I have to actually go away for a second because I also do pet care. <laughs> like that's that's part of being a community journalist is that we usually, we almost always have to have like other jobs in addition to, you know, our reporting. So I, I step away to go do that. I get a text from somebody who's there the police have shown up, they're talking to people, and I was like, okay, I'll be right down. And I, of course, r- alert our reporting thread. You want to take over, Veronica?
4: I was with family that night, and it started winding down, and I wanted to bring Michelle to a plate of Christmas dinner. And when we got there, within a few minutes, I kind of looked down the hill and saw that there were like 10 car cars all of a sudden, at least, like the whole street was just lined with them. And there's like a, in between the street and the top of the hill where everyone was, there's a small parking area for the tennis courts that are right over there, which are a public park. So I looked over at Matilda and I was like, well, I have to stay. So I gave my son and my best friend my keys and asked them to bring me the jacket out of the car This is a little colder than I was dressed for. And Matilda and I whispered together a little bit. We were walking around, following, because the cops were, like they were groups of them, but then they were also spreading out and shining lights into tents that had uh, people in them. And of course we wanted to hear what was being said because we're recording and take photos. But out of the way, you know, not standing in anybody's way doing anything and the next thing I knew Matilda and I were being arrested I remember looking up at her and I even heard it in the video from Wednesday when we were at court where I was like are you serious right now (laughs) because I really couldn't believe it that it was happening because if they hadn't been there I would have been home Matilda would have been like okay well nothing's happening so you know I'm going to go, call me if anything changes. We wouldn't have needed to be there if they hadn't have been
3: there. And Veronica had been arrested before. So the August of 2020, like also covering a demonstration, a racial justice demonstration, that was also really anti gentrification Anyway, we were like, surely they won't do this again. And they did. We assert our... Press freedom multiple times, and they just continue to say that it doesn't matter, and basically considering us like anybody else. There's actually body cam footage of them saying, "We'll get the standing ones first because they're videotaping," and we were arrested first. This was after other people that were up there who were not in tents had moved down the hill, so we were literally the last people up there who could. Capture anything that came next. We couldn't actually publicize the dragging of people out of tents, which the body cam footage. So it was pretty violent, and it's just like one after another people just being dragged from tents. So anyway, we're we're put into the police van. The officer who's who took me down the hill. So Aston is on a hill. That should be also clarified. Aston is on top of a big hill. The bottom of the hill is quite a ways away. It's nighttime. There was no way that we could have, like, kept covering the events from the bottom of the hill. So, you know, we would have had to just end our coverage, basically. Anyway, the cop who arrests me is misgendering me, thinks about putting me in the right gendered compartment of the police van, and then changes his mind and puts me on the male side. So I end up being kept in the police van for, like, gosh, like two and a half hours handcuffed and finally get out of the jail at like 2, 2.30, something like that in the morning. That's basically the events of that night. Yeah.
4: I remember Matilda and I were arrested like the very first, but Matilda was like the last person let yeah. out and finding out that they had left her in handcuffs and in the prisoner transportation the paddy wagon whatever basically that entire time and just being like that inhumane
1: so they drove you to the jail and left you in the van yeah
4: yeah they were taking us out like two by twos essentially there was like no rhyme or reason to it the van itself is gendered binary and but the person that i was being booked at the same time is an amab person so it's not like they were like oh let's get the ladies first and work that way it was there was no reason there's no logic to why they kept Matilda the very last person when she was one of the first two people arrested and the other thing that one of my biggest takeaways from that night was being the being in the seating waiting to be like booked and released and I heard the cop say to the magistrate, who actually was the one discharging, she says she's pressed. And the magistrate says, Was she real pressed? Because in that very moment, he could have decided that we were pressed, which we were, and most likely wouldn't have filled out the charges because the magistrate has legal right to say, No, I'm not. If you want to find somebody to do it, find somebody to do it. But they have the legal right to say no. But he asked specifically, are they real press? And the cop said no, or like I said, or whatever.
1: I'm also curious, because you said that you couldn't publicize people being dragged out of tents. What do you mean by that?
3: Veronica was saying that that night. The job of the press is to report on things. That's our responsibility is to capture what happens at events. You know, we can't get in the way and like stop police from doing what they're doing, but we can, we can film and that's important. And we weren't allowed to do that.
1: So you mean that you weren't allowed to publicize that, not that you wouldn't have personally chosen to?
3: Well, the fact that we were arrested before we could, Actually, capture any of that footage or images. So that happened
1: after you were arrested. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
3: that's yeah. yeah, Like we were, we were arrested first, and they actually talked on body cam, explaining that that was their intention was to stop videotaping because their videotaping will get the standing ones first, us.
1: Is there a law in, on the books in North Carolina that says legal to film police?
4: Any laws concerning it, to the best of my knowledge, like I'm pretty sure it's still legal. or I know it's still legal. I just don't think there's anything specific to it.
3: Yeah, it's like one of those things where it's legal to film the police, but they're going to start going down their list of things they can charge you with.
1: And I'm also curious, how can you be trespassing in a public park? I mean, I guess like if it's after dark or something and it says the park is closed, but trespass suggests that it's private property, correct?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Usually trespassing implies that there's private ownership of a property and the city, I can't remember exactly when they passed it, but at some point in the past they made it. So the goal was to stop people from sleeping in the park So they put a curfew on all the city parks of 10 p.m. Like the goal was we can't have anybody sleep here because we would like more tourists and more more gentrification dollars.
3: I think it was around the Occupy movement when Um, that was first put into place.
1: You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll now continue our conversation with journalists Matilda Bliss and Veronica Coit. And so I do want to, because uh, because I've seen that you all have reported on the mutual aid organizing that was happening there. And, you know, this is something that we've also seen like food, not bombs across the country being arrested for the heinous crime of feeding people and that folks organizing in the park there were charged with felony littering, which I didn't, I never heard that. But if it's a thing, like I'm wondering where in Norfolk Southern or BP is going to be charged with felony littering.
4: That's why that law
2: yeah.
4: is to stop major companies, but sometime in the last and correct me, Matilda, because I can't remember all the details of it, but I didn't waste management in the last like year or two actually do a large inappropriate dump somehow and no one got charged for it.
3: Yeah, I mean they've they've talked about oh well, you know, this stuff happens or we're never able to actually charge anybody yeah. conveniently. When it's like large companies doing it, they can never find the the company to charge or they can't prove it or something. And we've been following some of the felony court proceedings and that's going about as you would expect. They are really struggling to form a case on this. I mean, it's ridiculous. For one thing, part of what's considered felony literally like literally signs that talked about gentrification House Neighbors before tourist was like written on a suitcase and was set up as an art display. I mean that was that was how it was built. Like an art build. And part of another part of what was actually put up there was for a mutual aid purpose. Remember, at this time the city is just denying people access to code purple shelters. They're not funding it. People are setting up pallets and rows to kind of break the wind. Some of these nights that we got down in the 20s, it's not like people were like, Okay, round up all your junk. Let's go dump it at Aston, which would which would be felony littering. It was, let's call attention to what's happening. Let's set up infrastructure for people to be able to camp safely. And the city was like, you must be felony littering. And they actually threatened people on the Wednesday before Christmas. Threatening to push people out of the park who were there, like during daylight hours with art supplies. They were threatening investigations then, which we called attention to it was like, this is ridiculous, and we we mentioned the police commander that was there, and next thing we know we're being targeted first. So I think it's a big part of it is like the retaliation aspect. but yeah, yeah, felony littering it's going about as well as you would expect though, so we'll see we'll see how things go from here, but
1: And so I'm curious the the struggle with y'all's case too. What is the status? I know that you mentioned that you recently went to an appeal hearing. What, what's new with with your case?
3: So, we've so far we've only had our bench trial after six continuances, seven, something like that. It was obviously yeah, almost like 16 months after we were arrested. We drew a judge that has actually we're we're not shy about the fact that we're abolitionists, that we believe in defunding the police, abolishing them even, and we happen to draw a judge who has criticized those stances as the craziest thing he's heard. And so the prosecutor didn't even try to make the case that we weren't journalists. So they're giving on that issue.
4: Yeah, that was the only thing the defense and the prosecution agreed on was that They did not have to prove that we were, you know, employed with the blade. So being journalists was actually not up for debate.
3: Yeah. And so then the judge says that no evidence has been presented that we were journalists. Just wild stuff. And, And so interestingly, we were offered a plea deal before the bench trial, which was a prayer for judgment continued, where... The conviction quote unquote goes away after a year if we don't do any other crime or something. (laughs) Which is like, okay, defined how that works because we were not doing crime all the times that members of our collective have been arrested doing what press is supposed to do. Anyway, so that that is the plea deal. The judge actually decides to sentence us to the plea deal. That's how weak their case is. Are you sure you don't want it? Are you sure?
4: Yeah, right before he decided to throw the whole entire book at me. Yeah, we'll give you a prayer for justice if you just say you're guilty. And I'm like, that is no.
3: Mm -mm." And so we, you know, if we had done a prayer for judgment, we would not have been able to appeal. And so we're like, no, we're not guilty. We're going to appeal this. And then he illegally sentenced Veronica. We found that out yesterday that the sentence that he gave Veronica was... A year of supervised probation?
4: It's 10 days in jail suspended for one year probation. So one year probation kind of or 10 days in jail, which is insane. Also, it's important to point out for both of us, the kind of quote minimum sentence was one day so at that point because of being in jail being booked etc we had one day credit so he could have very easily said okay one day is your sentence both of you and now you have time served so he didn't have to give me 10 days or a year of probation that was not, it's not like a minimum sentencing stuff where he's like, oh, my hands are tied. I have to do this much. No, no, he actively chose to do that on purpose.
3: Yeah, so we're, we appealed that (laughs) and we're not sure exactly when the jury trial will happen.
1: If the question of you being press is not up for debate, then how could they possibly move forward with a trial when it's very clear... (laughs) that you were practicing your First Amendment right of being press.
3: There's all kinds of interesting justifications out there by people who already hate our work to begin with. And none of them hold legal muster. So welcome to Asheville. That is the current state of things where, because of political bias, the police, the prosecutor, judges are trying to assert that water is not wet, I guess, over here. And, you know, both Veronica and I have written articles for the Blade. We were identifying repeatedly. I mean, Veronica has been arrested before, like, as press tracking an event. It's just magical talk.
1: But of course, this is kind of, you know, like charging folks in Atlanta with terrorism. Even if that does not hold up in court, the goal is to scare others and to scare those who are caught in those crosshairs. Oh, well, I better never try to defend a forest or I better never try to report on something that's going on in my community because then I might find myself in this position.
3: And interestingly, this is the culmination of years of anti-press sentiment, especially with the police department. In 2020, in the fall, there was a lot of conversation about thousands of people have been contacting Asheville City Council telling them to defund APE. So that was out there, and they, they were like, let's interview the police on what they think about being defunded.
4: They hired a consultant firm, the city did, the City Council hired a consultant firm to come in. And first, they sent out a survey to residents of the city, he posted all over their social media. Then they had a private meeting with APD officers and people who work with the APD.
3: Yeah, and uh, one of their top concerns was scrutiny from media. We we acquired records. So there was a previous eviction at Aston Park of a houseless camp in April 2021. And we requested records from that. And those records revealed that our coverage was uh, messaged to one of the police commanders, Mike Lamb, and was fussing about our coverage. Not actually pointing at anything that was false, but like, this is terrible. The police commander forwarded that on to the police chief and the city manager. There's later records of the city manager saying yippee when people were arrested from that camp. Then you have the police chief more recently saying that maybe the journalists were the problem, claiming that we could have filmed from the bottom of a hill which was like a hundred yards 30. from where things were happening that night. So there's so much like we could keep going for a while, but the police chief's wife has been spreading misinformation all over the internet about us in our case. Realtor police chief's wife. And police I
4: want to go back lady. to the meeting thing too, because the reason that we know this is because it's not private information. Right. This consultant firm presented this at a city council meeting where they had like this little chart and it said the top whatever reason for um, the police didn't feel safe, quote, doing their job was because of scrutiny from citizens and from scrutiny from the media. And that was the word they used, scrutiny. So they don't want to be questioned, being questioned, answering about what they do, that makes them feel not good to do their job. Maybe if you don't feel good answering questions about the job you do, you, you shouldn't be doing the job.
1: Good point. Accountability seems like it should be a requirement if you are carrying right. a deadly right. weapon. So thank you y'all for taking the time to share your stories. Where can folks follow the coverage of this this issue?
3: com is where we post our articles. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash avlblade if anybody wants to subscribe that's how we keep going
1: and that does it for another episode of the project censored show on pacifica radio i'm eleanor goldfield co-hosting with mickey huff for this episode i've also been your associate producer and anthony fest is our senior producer Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S. from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org, and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at RadicalEleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
0: Crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguise another guise of democracy. Politics at the apocalypse got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison and the weapons manufactured paid for by taxes by the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, building capacity, citizens. In the times with the master thief, buy and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out, the reach on potential, fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love.